0: Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing.
1: Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman.
0: One of the interesting aspects of the Think Humanities podcast is introducing you and getting to know myself, fascinating people who are ordinary citizens who have accomplished some very important things. One of those people is Linda Lefstick. Dr. Lefstick joined the University of Kentucky faculty in 1982. She came to Lexington from Columbus, Ohio, where she was a consultant for Teacher Education Program Assessment with the Ohio Department of Education. She holds a BS from the Capital University in Columbus, Ohio and taught in public and private schools in that state. She holds the MS degree from the Ohio State University. Her areas of academic interest and expertise focus on teaching and learning history. She is retired from the University of Kentucky Education Department. And I would think, uh, Dr. Levesque, by looking at your resume, we have a lot to talk about this afternoon. Thanks for joining us.
1: I'm happy to be here. I appreciate uh, your interest.
0: Well, we, uh, as I said, uh, like to talk to interesting people, and your uh, lifetime of study and research uh, and uh, work in uh, particular in uh, several fields, uh, I find uh, quite interesting. So. Let me just ask you uh, about your work uh, many years ago as an undergrad and then as a a graduate student uh, working in the Ohio Education Department, and then that transitioned you to uh, Kentucky and, I guess, the University of Kentucky. So take us back to that time and tell us about the work that you became interested in.
1: Okay. So um, the the origins of, of my interest comes from my being a classroom teacher. Uh, amongst other things. I I, I transitioned from New York to Ohio and then eventually to here. So I've lived in different regions. I came to schooling in Ohio as a different experience than had been for me growing up in New York. But the one thing that was really remarkably clear as a classroom teacher was how smart the the children were. I was teaching upper elementary and middle school kids the ones everybody else is afraid of, right? I loved them. They were so smart. They would do just about anything that you presented to them if you made it the least little bit interesting. But more importantly was that they were intellectually capable of handling far more than people usually credit them with. And that was the beginnings of my research because originally what I wanted to do was to prove that the students I had were not anomalies. They were not unusual, that all kids could do these kinds of things. And so as an undergraduate um, at uh, Capital University, that was a really long time ago, uh, (laughs) I did both education and history and any other courses that they um, had that had to do with the social sciences. I was particularly interested in world history although um, my, my degree is actually social and, and Amer- American Social and Intellectual um, History. But I taught, when I became a classroom teacher, most of the time I taught world history. And that was really interesting because it gave me a chance to think about what kids were like here versus what kids might be like in other parts of the world. And I'm going to skip around a little bit here. But it wasn't until I was doing research out of the United States, as as a beginning professor at the University of Kentucky, I um, started looking at how kids make sense out of the past. How do they learn history? And I wrote about those kids as if the way the American kids that I researched made sense of the past was a sort of generic response that kids, no matter where they were, would have until I went to New Zealand and I spent a sabbatical in New Zealand and I did the same kind of studies with kids there that I had done here and then later in Ghana. Um, So I had these three very different cultural settings and the kids responded differently. And that's when I became interested in the impact of a national context on how kids self-identify nationally, and also make sense out of not their not just their own past, but a world's past.
0: Tell us, if you will, the difference that you saw in uh, New Zealand, uh, Ghana, uh, comparing uh, those children to the United States.
1: Well, the, the clearest ones are things that American kids have bought into the national progress, American exceptionalism. Um, the kids in New Zealand see themselves as one kid told me um, at the bottom of the world and that they that the the people didn't understand that they had something to offer the world. And so New Zealanders were always kind of knocking on the door. American kids never felt like that. They felt that they owned the door in Ghana The kids were um, very much interested, not just in their own national identity, because they were, in historic terms, relatively newly uh, a country, but also to see themselves as Pan-African. What does it mean in the current world to be African? And also how the rest of the world perceived them. And so they were very interested in um, making their own country a better place making um, Africa um, seen by the world differently and also for the, for the rest of the world to perceive them as having serious contributions to make. So the American kids had less of the, I, we have to prove ourselves both the New Zealand children and the kids from Ghana were more um, we want to be part of the world. We want to make a contribution to the world we are not going to just expect that everything will go well for us.
0: It seems like to me, and I, w- I would think that this is a um, naive uh, observation, that education is going through a transformation like we've never seen before. Now, part of that is is maybe easily displaced by COVID and um, what adjustments we have to make. But if we would have been so lucky not to have had the virus in the first place and did not have to go to remote uh, teaching uh, the way we are today. We were going through a transformation anyway. What did you begin to observe and when in how education began to, and and I'm particularly thinking uh, in the United States as compared to other places in the world that you studied, when did you see education and the, the teaching methods the social, uh, part of, um, uh, of what, when, when children, did they always think critically, um, where they taught that is that so, so t- talk to me about the, the transition from, uh, what you studied early on in your career and what you find today.
1: Okay. So, um, uh, my background is a little unusual relative to, um, the way that schools perform, because I went to schools that were very innovative. So from the time I was an undergrad until I had my first teaching positions, both in public and private schools, I was in teaching in school systems that were already inquiry-based. So in other words, you didn't, uh, I, I didn't lecture at the kids, I mean, the small lectures, but overall what you did was you presented Powerful questions. You made sure that the students had the resources to answer those questions or to at least get a good shot at it. So that was my background. Um, And when I came to Kentucky, that was not the primary medium of instruction in the schools that I was in. They were probably, initially at least, it felt to me like they were probably 20 years behind in terms of that kind of thing. I think they caught up. And I think one of the things where you began to see changes was when we had the, the, um, the court ruling that our states run, our our schools run constitutional
0: 1990.
1: Yeah. 19 between 90 and 95. I Mm -hmm. served on curriculum committee. i chaired the curriculum committee for social studies and we tried to push towards a more, um, Question-oriented, a more inquiry-oriented, a more critical um, kind of an approach, and particularly, particularly in social studies. So, some of the research that backs that up—it's now a good forty years. I mean, some of it you could go back to John Dewey, in the early nineteen hundreds, but a lot of what's current started about thirty to forty years ago and has been increasing and spreading um, in, in different ways and probably touches most places in the United States now. The, the problem with it is that along with saying that we want kids to be critical thinkers, um, to be um, uh, better at all of the content area kinds of things, we've also instituted a system of testing that limits teachers in what they can do. So in my field in social studies, what we've seen is the reduction of attention to social studies. So what does that mean? Kids are not getting. They're not getting citizenship education. They're not getting critical thinking around public issues. They're not getting a sense of how we got to where we are now. And if you looked at what some of the the people doing the tests were saying about um, what's the purpose of my field in social studies? It was, well, you're just supposed to learn history. You're just supposed to learn all that stuff. And somehow that will make you a critical thinker. And somehow that will make you a better citizen. But there is no evidence that teaching in those traditional ways has that impact. So you set up a system that's schizophrenic. On the one hand, you say you want critical thinking, right? And on the other hand, you say, we're going to create a testing system that doesn't look at that at all. That's not, um, there, there were days when I was training teachers at UK where I would get pretty frustrated because what I was trying to help my students become was not what some of the schools they would go in would allow them to do.
0: The the system of uh, testing is relatively new in, in Kentucky, and that's my only reference point. Uh, having lived in a few other states, also, but I, I don't remember it was uh, prior to 1990. Um, is it a? And and now it seems like even in a short period of time, we're transitioning back to um, less testing. Uh, possibly, I don't I don't know what the current uh, curriculum and and testing uh, edicts call for. Uh, uh, is it a good thing or is there a, um, a marriage of both that, that you would stress needs to be managed in a way that children
1: are learning? Well, when, when we did the 90 to 95 reform, some of the performance assessment that was promoted then was based on good research and could have been a more compatible way of assessing. If what you want is inquiry, if you what you want is critical thinking, then what you want to do is assess those kind of things. And that assessment, in theory, said to do that. In practice, it didn't always work out that way. But in theory, at least, now I haven't you know, I haven't seen the the latest version of the social studies one. I've re, you know I've been retired for the last couple of years, so that wasn't what I was looking at but I'm not against assessment. What I want is an assessment that actually teaches kids something in the process of assessment. That is the kind of um, assessment that gives kids a chance to show what they know instead of what they don't. That may come, but in the current political context, I don't see that The, the national assessment of educational progress has always been subject to the political winds, but I, I worked on developing those tests for from 1982 until just a couple of years ago uh, in history, American history. And if you look at what they're saying, there's, this kind of testing isn't, in this kind of uh, more rote-based instruction is not producing kids who know a lot about, in my field, anything, citizenship or geography or history. So coming up with an assessment system that matches the purposes of a particular approach to curriculum is not cheap, which makes it unlikely to happen. And it's not easy, which makes it equally unlikely to happen.
0: I have a quote uh, here uh, from you, um, uh that I find very interesting targeting child readers. But I also want to tell you, uh, Dr. Levsky, that the, uh, this podcast is the uh, first podcast that we've had a underwriter, a sponsor, uh, and we're very proud of that. So we're going to pause uh, right now and hear from Spalding university. At Spalding university school of creative and professional writing, Students develop mastery of the writing skills, highly prized in today's workplace, including arts and humanities organizations, government agencies, corporations, and small businesses. A professional writing student will explore opportunities writing for trade and consumer media, including reviews, profiles, interviews, and articles for sports, food, travel, health and science, and other publications. Learn more. At, at spaulding.edu slash school of writing or email school of writing at we're back with linda levstick who is a uh, just retired in the last uh, i think you said couple of years from the university of kentucky a longtime uh, researcher and uh, instructor in many many areas and we're talking about education and Uh, what she's learned over the years, Um, and I'm not sure if this came out of your uh, doing history, which you co-authored, and it's now in its fifth uh, edition, but you can tell me about this quote, Uh, and it is, The rise of uh, a literature specifically targeting child readers, which, of course, at Kentucky Humanities, we're very interested in, is a significant, if often overlooked, piece of a larger historical pattern in which the uh, contending cultural groups attempt to control the words and worlds available to different groups within and between societies. Now give me the uh, the layman's definition of that sentence, if you will, please.
1: Yeah, that, that comes from a study that I was doing looking at a series of children's books that were produced um, between 1920,, 1920 19, 19, and 1955. It, one of the things that happens is the kids don't write the books themselves, obviously. It's not like an adult literature somebody else writes it. And often the authors who write the children's books are writing out of their own childhood, which was 20 or 30 years ago. They also write from their own cultural perspective. And so if, if when we get a children's literature, we um, don't expect that that's going to be part of it where we're in danger of giving kids books that don't necessarily speak to, the full range of human experience, or at least the full range that's appropriate for children, um, and one of one of the, the areas of research and areas of education that I'm particularly interested in, and that children's literature has something to say about, is how do we help our students live in what's essentially a racist society, and, but is also a pluralist society. And how do we help them to become what um, Ibram Kendi talks about as being anti-racist? Not just tolerant, but active people who work to have a more equitable, not equal, but equitable society. I think children's books can help there. I know that they do in specific cases, but I also know that the majority of those books, and this, this is changing, but... For most of our history, the majority of those books have presented a very particular white middle-class world to children, which some parents nonetheless appropriated and turned into a a, sort of an entree point for their kids into schooling and to the middle class. So, and that's another historic, interesting point.
0: Do textbooks need to be rewritten today? Yeah. Because why?
1: Well... The textbooks, just like the children's books, are written from a particular point of view. Um, they are written so that you can sell them in Texas and you can sell them in Boston. You simplify the story and you overall, and and this is not fair to some of my colleagues who, who write better textbooks. There are, there are some good ones out there. But overall, the, the constraints of a textbook are in terms of length and in terms of what subjects you can cover and in terms of who's the center of the textbook and who's in the margins, really constrain what happens. I'm not much for using textbooks all by themselves, period, right? So I would use a textbook as one source if if I were teaching, again, a, a history class in any place. But I would have alternate sources that would allow that textbook to be interrogated by What would it look like if this textbook were written by black authors, by women authors, by native peoples, by immigrants, you know, that kind of stuff. And I've done that with kids. They love it. Textbooks are American history. Textbooks are arranged by periods. So we all know that there was a Westward movement like it started here and it ended, you know, X number of years later. But I asked the kids to look at it. So to say, okay, if you were going to write this from the point of view of women, what would the periods look like? What would you name the periods? If you were going to do this from the African-American experience, from the immigrant, and I would divide them into groups, and each group had a particular perspective, and they would come back and then argue for that perspective. Was It was one of those things that I thought about at the last minute before I did it, and then it went so well that I kept it forever.
0: Well, I would imagine, too, that um, with... Social justice being under the microscope and, and the way we got to the to the moment we're in today. You mentioned uh, Ibram Kendi, uh, how to be an anti-racist. Uh, I just also picked up uh, Isabel Wilkerson's cast. And it is uh, completely eye opening for uh, most of the white generation of of, of my era Um because now we're going back and looking at how a slavery and uh, antebellum South and plantation life was was written about, and it it certainly wasn't uh, what I studied in in history uh, when I was in school. Probably not. And so, how do you go back now with either textbooks or? a Chromebook or whatever children are are learning from. I hope they're still putting a book in their hands.
1: I hope so too. (laughs) Do all of those have to be rewritten? Well, it depends how you're going to use them, right? That textbook is a historical document, not just about history, but it is itself a a, a primary source for history. If you use it as a primary source for history, this would be in particular in a secondary school, And you say, all right, why are they telling the story the way they are? What were the political and social and cultural forces that created a a book that didn't have women in it? Or as one kid said, the only time women show up is when they're um, marching around the castle looking nice. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, yeah, I mean, kids quotes are great on this, this kind of stuff. It's not like they don't notice. So. What we need are a, a deep variety of sources, but what you need even more than that are to help teachers to know how to use those sources. It seems easy to use a textbook. You give it to the kids, you know, those huge the history textbooks, always way more than everybody else's huge tones. And you say, go home and read that and then come back. And really the only thing you need to do is look at the check, the questions at the end of the chapter and go back and look for those words in the text and read around those, and you'll be able to do fine in most classes that are textbook-based. If you do that, it seems like teaching history is easy, but it is not. It is fundamentally contentious. There are very few clear answers. What there are are facts and evidence and truth claims, and then interpretations and helping kids to do all of that is what all of that literature should do. So going back and rewriting everything, not nah, rewrite new stuff or not rewrite, write new stuff, use the old stuff as historical documents, have the kids critique them, have them write their own histories.
0: Tell me uh, as we um, get closer to the end of our podcast, uh, your interest in archeology span and, and when, when that began and was that a, uh, Another field of study, or is that something that you, you found fascinating and, and wanted to know
1: more about? Um, I didn't have, have any coursework in um, that. I ended up doing some consulting work with the Kentucky Archaeological Survey, and that grew into a 12-year collaboration with uh, Gwen Henderson and some of her colleagues, uh, and that's where we ended up with, uh, after a series of other studies, at Davis Bottom, look, helping kids to figure out how a shelter could tell you about the people who lived there. And it was historic archaeology. So I learned from her digging up the archaeology and she got the history kind of stuff. And we, we worked together on that. But what we found was that the kids who were studying Davis Bottom, who were 99 point whatever percent white, 99 percent whatever um, evangelical Protestant, pretty conservative Some of the most poverty stricken, conservative, and religiously based counties in, in Kentucky were nonetheless fascinated by this community because it was, from their point of view, peacefully racially integrated. And even though our question didn't require them to deal with that question about how that happened, that's what interested them. They envied people who lived like that. They, the questions that they raised. Um, were about how did you build a community that was not racist. And what, what Gwen and I took out of that was that one of the things that archaeology can do is because it attends to material culture, it can give you a chance to look at race diversity as a natural feature of human life and study it there instead of saying, well, Black people were there, there must be a problem.
0: For people who don't know uh, Davis Bottom is a uh, a part of Lexington near downtown where certainly uh, not only uh, uh blacks uh, lived uh, but uh, many different uh, ethnicities uh, settled there and uh, it is a uh, now under some uh, revitalization uh, because of housing and and that sort of thing uh it's a fascinating study and I've learned a lot from Gwen um, and what she's written for us in our Think History uh, segments that we uh, air on W E K U Radio and also on our website. But what what um, I guess you f- you found there that the 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 kids that you were teaching the students the the, the college the university students uh, didn't know anything about it and and uh, uh, cast it as a uh, a low income. Well, it was lower than 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 maybe a medium income. But but a a vibrant uh, community with uh, many different cultures on on display on on a on a daily basis.
1: Well, the the kids we were we worked with kids from fifth grade through eighth grade, and we also worked with my with my university students. Who and the the differences weren't that extreme, actually. You know, I mean, first of all, that community was established by four freed slaves, so it starts out as an abolitionist endeavor as it were. And then it integrates over time, especially as people from the mountains come in, can't find housing. So you have this, um, the lowest income and the first integrated community in Lexington. It's pretty fascinating. And the the way that what the kids liked about it, the, the young students was that they saw everybody working together in part because they had to But the kids we were um, working with also recognized the poverty of the place and understood about that and thought it was important to learn about people who were in in poverty groups. They also thought it was absolutely important to to learn about what it meant to live in an integrated community. So these were the questions that they had. How do people do that? One of the seventh graders um, in explaining why – Davis bottom was important, told me that, um, it was just like in the Bible where a rich man, it, it is, you know, it's easier for a camel to get through the head of the pin than for a rich man. And she said, we all know that that's true.
0: Out of the mouths of babes. yeah. Uh, Dr. Levsky, just as, um, are you hopeful about, um, uh, about our education system, about our future, about our, um, our, our work in places like Davis Bottom, about uh, life in, in general?
1: Yeah, I, I, and I think if you're an educator, you have to be. There, there's a, a poem by uh, Seamus Heaney that says, you know, don't hope on this side of the grave. But once in a lifetime, the, the longed-for tidal wave of justice will rise up and hope in history rhyme. My work is to see if we can get kids there. Because it's not a good thing to turn out little cynics, not in a democracy. It's not a good thing to turn out people who are blindly patriotic. What we need are what Thomas Paine called chastened patriots, people who are willing to critique their own society to build for a better common good, those sorts of things. So I am hopeful. I am particularly hopeful when I look at the youth protests that are going on around the country. I'm hopeful that. Kendi's book right now is like the number one bestseller. Wilkerson's will be. I'm on two um, group zoom things where people are talking how to become more anti-racist. And while I have days when I want to bang my head against the wall on, on that conversation, because I keep hearing people going, I didn't know. um, It is nonetheless hopeful that they're at least wanting to know.
0: Yeah. I agree with you. When I, um, build this at the top of the podcast uh, that it uh, oftentimes uh, brings uh, to our listeners interesting people. Uh, I think uh, we hit the nail on the head, but uh, doctor, thank you so much for being with us on Think Humanities uh, podcast. And uh, we look forward to continuing to, to hear from you and about the, the work that you're doing.
1: Thank you. appreciate being invited. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.